You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. As I've mentioned before in our study of 1 Corinthians, you can break the book up into two main sections. Uh, Chapter 1 through 6 is Paul addressing the reports that he had heard from those from Chloe's household about the disrepair in the Corinthian church. Chapter 7 through the end of the book is Paul answering questions that the Corinthians had written to him about and sent through three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, as we'll see in chapter 16. You see, the Corinthians were like many new believers who simply had questions for Paul. And it's beautiful to me that Paul answers these questions in detail, thoroughly, in ways that are still applicable in our modern era because it is the God-breathed, inerrant word of the Lord. But just what a beautiful environment that Paul, with even some questions that were rather tricky and difficult, was willing to answer their questions. Now, the first matter of which they wrote to Paul, he says, was this. They were saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. How's that for a bombshell here at the beginning of this next section in 1 Corinthians? It seems that there were some in the church in Corinth that were wondering aloud about sex in general. Paul had just taught in chapter 6 that sex outside of marriage is sinful, but there were many who were beginning to believe that God had dispensed with the act of sex entirely. Part of the reason that they thought that was because some of them had begun to believe that the body itself was sinful, and to be a spiritual person meant that you would not engage in bodily appetites. And Paul is going to swiftly correct that erroneous thought. And so Paul begins to talk to them about this subject. Now, in the course of this, Paul is going to affirm marriage and give instruction to married couples. He's going to affirm what they were affirming, singleness, but he's just not going to mandate singleness. And then he's going to give some instructions about marriage and remarriage and also the way to healthily practice a life of celibacy before God. Uh, So it seems here that since some had begun to promote celibacy, Paul is now going to answer their question, answer their objection. So in verse 2, he says, here's my answer. But, verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, like I said, some in Corinth wanted Paul to endorse celibacy at the expense of monogamous marriage. Now, Paul was going to actually endorse celibacy in just a few sentences, but not before he first endorsed marriage and the sex act within marriage. You see, Paul was far from forcing celibacy. 
Uh, in First Timothy, he tells Timothy that he wanted pastors who were married to be good at being married, the husband of one wife. He wanted younger widows to remarry, and he did not want those to forbid marriage to be operating within the church. No, Paul uh, rejoiced over the covenant of marriage that God has created. You see, all throughout the Bible, the virtues of marriage are extolled. In Genesis 2, we learn that God instituted it. Uh, We learn there that he instituted it primarily for companionship. But also, we learn in Scripture that he instituted it in order to, Malachi 2, verse 15, produce godly offspring. It's a safe place for the next generation to grow in love with the Lord. He also presented marriage because it is a picture of the love of Christ for his church, Ephesians chapter 5. And in that same chapter, we also learn that marriage is useful to the Holy Spirit to help sanctify some believers. So if you're a believer and you're married, God wants to use that marriage to help conform you to the image of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 2 that because of the temptation to sexual immorality, some people should get married, what we're really reading there is that that is one of the reasons that someone ought to get married. A release for sexual pressure, a release for sexual desire. Now, you know Paul, he wanted to avoid sexual immorality like the plague. We saw in chapter 6 that he thought of it as something enslaving. He also said that it could not satisfy, that it renders a person ineffective in their ministry before the Lord, that it harms the soul that there are grave consequences, that it defiles, and that it ignores the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul just had some simple common sense. If you can't handle a celibate life because of that sexual pressure, Paul said, then you ought to find relief within heterosexual marriage. Now, he goes on to say, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, the English Standard Version uses this phrase, conjugal rights. It's very literal, but also not very romantic. Other translations use words like marital duty or marital responsibility, or I love the New King James Version, which says, render the affection due to the other. Here, the idea is that the marriage bed should be a place of mutual love and romance and sex with the other. The husband, as the message version says, seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. The idea here is of giving. The idea here is not of the rights of yourself, but the rights of your spouse, the rights of the other. Now, there is a problem that the modern mind might have with the concept of verse 4 that the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does, and vice versa, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. First, 
whatever this means, we must be clear that it is mutual in nature. Paul is not promoting some type of sexual domination by one spouse over another. And if a man or a woman, for that matter, tries to use this teaching as a way to practice perversity or to force their spouse to do something they are uncomfortable doing, they have missed the mark. And unfortunately, I've actually seen so-called Christian men do this with this verse. If this verse is a nightmare for your spouse, then you are, are not applying this verse appropriately and you should ask for some pastoral or professional help in your life. No, the spouse should feel safe and respected in their sexual relationship with their husband. Remember what the wife said in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. She said, his banner, speaking of her husband, his banner over me was love. She felt safe in the love of her spouse. Now, the idea here of authority is that if you are married, you should note that your spouse has authority over you not the other way around. In other words, your body is not your own. You cannot choose immorality. Your spouse is the only person on earth with the rightful ability to physically satisfy you. Here, as Paul says this, what he's announcing is that the marriage bed, if you really think about this, is a microcosm of a healthy marriage. Uh, Because in marriage In the marriage bed, there should be selflessness. That's what Paul is announcing. Uh, You don't belong to yourself. You belong to your spouse. So there's a selflessness. It's not about me. It's about you. And when that attitude is present in the entire marriage, things go well. And when that attitude is present in the marriage bed, things go well. Also, there's communication that is needed. Look, if you as a married person are able to talk to your spouse about sex, you know, your desires, your likes, your dislikes. If you're able to talk about that, then more than likely you'll be able to talk about finances and parenting and in-laws. And also what you see there is mutual submission. This is required in a marriage, not just in the marriage bed, but throughout everyday life. The ability to mutually submit one to the other. And of course, respect is needed in the sexual relationship And above all, love is needed. And when selflessness and communication and submission and respect and love are present within a marriage, you can expect great things. And when they're present in a marriage bed, you can also expect great things. And so in a sense, as I said, the marriage bed is a microcosm of a healthy marriage. Now Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of (laughs) self-control. This is fascinating. The apostle actually weighs in on believers and their sexual relationship in marriage. He says, look, don't deprive each other. You should enjoy each other physically. You should spend time with each other physically. You should uh, engage one another physically. You should not use sex, he's announcing here, as a form of punishment or motivation or 
negotiation? No, he says you should just give yourself to the other. Do not deprive one another. Now, he does hold out a qualifier. He says, look, there might be times where you do, by agreement, deprive one another for a limited time. Perhaps so that you can devote yourselves, he says, to prayer and then to come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, God knows our frame, the Bible says. He remembers that we are dust, Psalm 103, verse 14. But you know who else knows our frame? The devil. And if you abstain for too long, the temptation, the pressure can build. And so Paul announces, look, enjoy each other. Spend time together. Now, there's no magic number. There's no magic amount that is godly or ungodly. A couple needs to talk to one another, express their desires, shift and ebb and flow with the different seasons of life, but they must enjoy one another physically in a proper way that is fitting for the marriage that they have chosen. Now, Paul goes on to turn from talking about marriage to talking about singleness. He says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now here he announces that he is not going to force anyone to be married. He's not commanding that marriage take place. Instead, he says, look, people have different gifts from the Lord. You know, when you become a believer, God wants to give you gifts, spiritual ability that is not your own. And Paul announces that there is a gift that he had. And the gift that he had, apparently, was the gift to, verse 8, remain single. To remain single. Now, this is fascinating. You know, we live in a time where, for the first time, over half of United States adults are unmarried. People cite different reasons for this. Cohabitation, uh, perhaps, is one reason. The proliferation of, you know, and the, the, the normalization of, premarital sex. It's just the common thing that people do. Longer lifespans leading people to become married later on in life, prolonging the single years, which would boost the stats at any given moment of how many people are single or married. The belief in marriage becoming obsolete and prolonged adolescence are all cited as reasons. I think one reason is just that it is difficult. It is difficult to be married, and I think many people have discovered the difficulty of that lifelong commitment to another person. Now, in Scripture, there are different types of singleness that are described. Let me give you the six that are described in Scripture. Number one, men and women who are often young prior to their first marriage. That might be the singleness that we often think of. Number two, widows. And by implication, widowers are also mentioned in Scripture. Number three, eunuchs, forced or volunteered, who had become, again, whether forced or volunteered, eunuchs. 
Number four, those who shouldn't marry due to a specific time of distress, like sickness or persecution or economic disaster. And we'll look at that one a little later in this passage. Number five, divorcees, both at fault and not at fault. And then number six, those who who are called by God to life without marriage. Here, Paul announces that he wished that many in the church would remain single like he was. You see, in Paul's mind, no one as a believer has to get married. You know, the only person who must be married is the person who's already married. And when Paul says this, there are a couple of implications that we could gain from that concept. One implication is that marriage must not indicate a certain level of holiness. I mean, if Paul the Apostle was not married, if Jesus was not married, then there must be a level of maturity that is possible without marriage. In fact, you could make the case that it is the immature in Christ who get married because, well, they have so much that the Lord needs to work on. (laughs) I wouldn't say that as a hard and fast rule. I'm just saying you could make that case. Here we learn that one must be able to mature in Christ without marriage. Another implication is that marriage does not indicate a certain level of favor from God. Do you think anyone had more grace, more favor, or felt more favored by God than Paul? He saw himself as completely loved by God, yet single before the Lord. In fact, he saw his singleness as a way that God expressed his love for Paul. Someone said it this way, marriage does not make you happy, it just makes you married. So Paul was a single man and he wished that others in the church would experience that singleness. Some think that Paul had been married previously in his life. Perhaps that's true. He voted on the death of Christians earlier in the book of Acts. The people who voted were members of the Sanhedrin. The members of the Sanhedrin were married, ergo he must have been married, is the logic that some people use. And many think that his wife may have died or that she departed and divorced him after he became a Christian because he was kind of a radical Christian. But in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to learn that Paul had every right to be married. He just chose not to. He saw this as a gift from God. That word, verse 7, for gift, is the same word for a spiritual gift. Many have a gifting that enables them to remain unmarried. Some people have that gift and some people do not. Now the important thing to recognize, and you'll see this as we move through this chapter, is that if you are single, your singleness is not for you. Paul says it is good for them to remain single. So he just saw the extreme benefits of of a single life. He saw that his own effectiveness was made possible by his singleness. He realized he would not have been the same for the Lord with a marriage. Singleness allowed him to do things that a married man couldn't do. He was mobile. He had a low financial burden. And he could do dangerous ministry that he might not have felt comfortable doing had he been a married man. But the single man or woman is less encumbered And can do things that the married person cannot or should not or likely would not do. But Paul goes on to say in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better better to marry than to burn with passion. Apparently, Paul was able to be single and conquer lust. Some cannot. Many widows or widowers experience an intensity of physical desire. And Paul says, well, they should pursue a Christian heterosexual marriage if that's where they're at in life. They should marry. Permanent singleness might not be for them. Now, he goes on to say in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Here, Paul charged married people not to separate and not to get divorced. Now, you may have noticed there in verse 10, he says, not I, but the Lord. Now, what he it means by that is not that everything else was just his own opinion, and now he's finally speaking authoritatively. What he means is, Jesus has spoken clearly on this particular issue. So, I'm not creating uh, apostolic doctrine and teaching. I'm just drawing on what Jesus has already communicated. Jesus said things like Matthew 19, verse 6, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So here, Paul says, don't divorce, don't depart. Really, in the Bible, there are only a few biblically acceptable reasons for divorce. Death, of course, is one, and that would not even be considered divorce, but that would end, of course, the marriage. Adultery, Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19, an acceptable reason for divorce, although it does not mandate it, forgiveness can happen. Non-Christian divorce or abandonment, as we'll see in a few verses. And then I think we could also say that there is some kind of form of extreme betrayal or hard-heartedness. That was the reason for the certificate of divorce all the way back in the days of Israel. God gave Moses the certificate of divorce because of the hard-heartedness of the hearts of the people of Israel. For that one, the church really has to be involved. You have to come under the body of Christ and see has a betrayal and hard-heartedness that is just irreparable come upon this marriage. There are many, though, unacceptable reasons for divorce. Uh, I felt God told me to. I'm tired of this marriage. We don't love each other anymore. These are all unacceptable reasons for divorce. What he announces is that if the spouse does depart, if the wife does separate, She's got to be remade, remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's the option. Reconciled to them or remain unmarried. In other words, God sees the departed spouse as a married person. When gone for an unbiblical reason, their only recourse is to be reconciled. Now, a question that comes up here is, what if after someone for the wrong reasons departs, the person who was left and is more innocent, if, if I can use that phrase, that person remarries. And so reconciliation for the person who departed in the form of remarriage is now impossible. What happens then? Well, reconciliation there would take the form of making amends, giving it time, showing sorrow. That is possible reconciliation. There have been times where we will contact the offended spouse to be sure that they have released their ex-wife or their ex-husband. This is difficult terrain. It's nothing clean about it. 
But I believe that if there is remorse, humility, and repentance, and if the marriage cannot be redone due to another marriage now in play, then a person who has left with consideration from their church might be able to be remarried, but ought to consider remaining unmarried, according to this passage. Now, Paul goes on to say, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now here, Paul has to weigh in on it. Jesus talked about divorce, but here now he says, now I'm going to speak up. The Lord has no teaching on this yet, so I'm going to be his vessel and communicate. And what he announces is that if a non-believer remains in the marriage, then the married person should stay in it. But if the unbeliever departs, then the believer is free. Now, these are people who were Christians, became Christian after they got married. So they, they were married as pagans. They got married. One of them becomes a believer. And so, you know, Paul is saying, look, if the, if the non-believer is willing to be in that marriage, which you would think that they would want to be, because if you're a Christian, now you're behaving better than you were before. If that's the case, then the believer stays in the marriage. But if the non-believer departs, which might have been Paul's situation, like we've speculated earlier, then the Christian is free to remarry. For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. You see, unbelieving spouses here and children are set apart by the presence of a believing spouse. What are they set apart for? I think it's very simple. It's just they're set apart for God's attention. You know, you are in their life, and so they're going to hear about the Lord, hear about the truth, hear the gospel. They get a little more attention from the Lord because you are in their life. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You know, remain, Paul is saying, because you never know. Your presence might actually lead to salvation in this person's life. Now, Let's quickly read the rest of the chapter, and I'll make a few brief comments as we go. He says only, verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So, you know, rather than dreaming of another life, we should just walk as the Lord has called us to. And that pertains to marriage, singleness, and then he even uses these categories religiously, circumcision or uncircumcision. Be the, be the person God has made you to be. Were you, verse 21, a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So he announces, look, you can be set free. If, if you can get your freedom, then take it. So, brothers, in whatever condition, verse 24, each was called, there let him remain with God. That's his summary of his advice to married Christians. Whatever condition you were called in, remain in that condition. Now, concerning the betrothed, back to this subject, verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Now, here Paul is you know, writing this trustworthy saying under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he talks about this present distress and a way to behave concerning marriage because of the present distress. Basically, if you're unmarried, don't try to get married. And if you're married, don't try to get out of your marriage because of the present distress. That brings up the big question, what was the present distress that Paul referred to? Something it might have been famine or persecution or coming political turmoil. But basically, Paul knew that it was a tough time to be a Christian. You know, he, he, he realized that. He saw that. So he announced, look, this is not a good time to change your marital status. It makes it a good time to be single. And this will color the rest of this passage. We, we will read that do not seek a wife. You'll have trouble in the flesh. I want you to be without care. Serve the Lord without distraction. It doesn't mean the marriage is a bad thing. It just means that there are times where it is distressful to enter into it. So it might not be wise in that moment or in that season. There might be even applications for this in our modern era when you think about, well, you know, I've got all this debt or I'm in college or I'm sick or I'm on the mission field or there's no one else like-minded in Christ. Those might be times as well to remain single, even though you don't want to be perhaps, to remain in it because it's better to have singleness in that present distress than to be married uh, and compromise. This is what I mean, brothers, verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this, verse 35, for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. To please the Lord, Paul says, this, is, this can be true of your season of singleness, but it isn't automatic. Just because you're single doesn't mean that you're going to devote yourself to pleasing the Lord. No, you have to pursue the Lord during this time of your life to really give yourself to, to his call. Now, what he announces there is that, you know, to be married, there's going to be anxiety about worldly things. It's true. Married couples worry about 
their relationship together, about parenting, about finances, about their physique and their own their health together, spiritual pressures, friendships, life decision. There are concerns that a married couple has that a single person is able to be more free from. So the question here is, look, there's pleasing the Lord, pleasing your wife. There's pleasing your husband or undivided devotion to the Lord. The married man or woman leads a different kind of life. This is just a just an absolute fact. So Paul, again, is promoting the idea of singleness, that it can be useful to the Lord. If anyone, verse 36, thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his, his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, that entire paragraph that I just read is very difficult to interpret, and the difficulty centers around the identity or the question of the identity of who Paul's addressing. Who is this anyone? If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, who is that? Is Paul referring to a fiancé or is he referring to a father? If it's a fiancé, it means it w- if it would harm the woman if you didn't marry, then marry. If it's a father and it means it would mean if it would harm your daughter if you did not give her in marriage, then give her in marriage. So he says in verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. She's got to marry a believer. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Now, this is very interesting. Paul announces, look, she should get remarried, but, you know, I just want to put one last plug in to promote a life of singleness. Look, many of you that are listening to this, the Lord may have called to a life of singleness, whether for a period of time or for the fullness of your life. Allow your singleness to be used by God. Don't let your singleness be a distraction, a label, an identity. Let it be a weapon in the hands of the Lord for you, brother or sister, are a gift to the body of Christ who has great value, just as much value as anyone who finds himself in a married state. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.